Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace takes place before the three Star Wars movies we've already seen. So we have a number of new characters, including Darth Maul. Jabba the Hutt makes brief appearances, but he's not as gross as he was in Return of the Jedi. Thank you, Mr. Lucas, for that. I miss Chewbacca. Chewie will always be one of my favorites. I can't say enough about the visual effects. They are spectacular, especially the lightsaber fights and pod races. If the story seems less exciting, remember, this is chapter one, so it needs time for exposition. This is not the second coming with the original cast, but if you keep your expectations in check, you can have a blast with this new Star Wars. I've seen it twice, and when the crowds thin out, I may go again. Bobby Wygant, NBC5. This week, we are talking about the incredible contributions of the legendary Bobby Wygant. Her interviews have made a huge impact on Star Wars. Everybody's talking about Bobby Wygant. Everybody. We were saying before we started recording, we can't believe it's taken us this long for us to talk about Bobby Wygant. I'll be honest, I didn't even know who Bobby Wygant was until this week. <laughs> and I feel like such a fool for not knowing about all of this for all these years. I feel like I started hearing about her, I think it was in 2015, right around the release of The Force Awakens, when one of her vintage interviews with Harrison Ford was making the rounds, where it was like, check out this newly discovered 1977 interview with Harrison Ford where he's talking about how he was playing Han Solo for the first time. And I feel like part of the thing with the Bobby Wygant interview thing and the Bobby Wygant archive, which we're going to be talking so much about, it's like the, the beauty of them is she is just as fascinating sometimes as the people she's talking to. Well, and also... She's one of those interviewers who seem like they're genuinely enjoying the conversation and genuinely love movies. And for how many hundreds and hundreds of people she's talked to, it doesn't come across like this is her job. It comes across like she just wants to talk about 
movies with her buddies. And her buddies happen to be anyone and everyone you can think of that's ever been in a movie. And as we're going to get very much into, she is not afraid to ask anyone anything. Just anything that comes to her mind, she'll, she's going to ask these people. And yeah, we're, we're just talking about Star Wars people in this episode. She was doing interviews for Star Wars in 77, for Empire in 1980. She did a bunch for Phantom Menace. There's even some wild ones in between in there that we're talking about. Weirdly, there's nothing for Return of the Jedi yet, or Attack of the Clones, or Sith yet. The Bobby Wygant archive keeps updating just about every day. But yeah, it's like not only is she fascinating, but it's like something that we don't talk about enough, like the Star Wars interview and talking to these people that were involved in the films at these crucial periods of time in Star Wars history. It's all just so fascinating. It really is because there's just something about going back to those early moments of promoting the movie when the people who made the movie are excited about the movie, but they have no idea what people are going to, how they're going to respond or with some of these, the movies out and it's popular, but it's only been popular for a couple weeks. They really have no idea what, what the future will bring. And it's just these, it's, it's wonderful that there's these little time capsules of these promotional tours that give us kind of a glimpse into just kind of what was going on in those moments. Asking the big questions, will the Empire Strikes Back really be as successful as Star Wars? <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know. Will it? Will people still care about the Empire Strikes Back? I don't know. Maybe. Before we start diving in, let's talk about Bobby a little bit more. Bobby Wygant. She's 95 years old. She is still out there. She's still been posting videos on YouTube. The amazing thing with the Bobby Wygant archive is it's all these videos on YouTube, and they were added by Fort Worth, Texas filmmaker Eric Clapp, who was a former associate producer for Bobby. He maintains the Bobby archive on YouTube. And these videos are extra amazing, too, because they're like, all the raw, unedited footage of interviews. So there'll be like a clapboard at the beginning. There'll be like a little bit of chatter with the actors before the interview starts. And then after it's done, there's a little bit of chatter. And then after it's done, there's just the raw footage of Bobby sitting there saying like, okay, and now let's get me for my reaction shots. And she'll just be like laughing at nothing. It's just really fascinating because if you're not used to how television is made or movies are made or documentaries are made kind of a thing that, you know, seeing just the raw stuff and how much, even though it is just asking questions and getting kind of off the cuff answers that there still is some show business in there with doing some inserts of her reacting or, or her asking the question after the fact, which isn't actually how she asked the question when she asked the person. And usually you see the final result. And yeah, you don't get to see all this uh, raw goodness. And there's some extra treats in there sometimes with just the chit chat between the, uh, the guests and her as well. There's an amazing interview coming up that we're going to be talking about with, with Bobby Irwin Kirshner and Gary Kurtz. And in the beginning, like 
Kirsch and Kurtz are like talking about like, oh, yeah, we've been traveling. We just came in today. We've been traveling around. and <laughs> Just like a little small talk between Erwin Kirshner and Gary Kurtz. I would watch a half an hour of just that. Like, oh, this, this is the good stuff. I'd make popcorn. Right. Show, show me before the interview and after the interview. I don't care about the interviews. With the with the real raw stuff. <laughs> Celebration Anaheim, just a panel, just unedited Kirsch and Kurtz footage. Ooh. Will that be on the lottery system for Celebration Anaheim? Yeah. Everybody wants the wristbands for that. But Bobby is an absolute legend. She got her start at the Texas station KXAS in 1948, back when it was known as WBAP-TV. She started as a writer. She was writing commercials, intro to shows, whatever. She started hosting her own talk program, Dateline, in 1960, when she filled in for the original host, who was sick. And then in around 1975... She started doing interviews and coverage of community stuff. And then starting in 1977, she started doing interviews with the stars. She worked all the way up to 2002, having worked full-time for over 50 years. And in 2019, she published her autobiography, Talking to the Stars, Bobby Wygant's 70 Years in Television. Why don't we have this book? I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was like, why aren't we reading her book? You know, she's probably talking about Star Wars in it. Probably a lot. <laughs> would, be, would be my guess. But she says many times in some of these Star Wars interviews that she is a Star Wars freak. That is her words. She tells Rick McCallum to his face that she is a Star Wars freak. Yeah, in her Phantom Menace review, she admits to having already seen it two times before the review, and and she's contemplating a third when the th- when it dies down. She says so. She's definitely uh, she's in it because she loves it. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about George Lucas and joy and balance and talking deep stuff, but yeah, like we said, there's just something absolutely special about the stars of Star Wars just talking off the cuff. Getting completely at ease with the charm and grace of Bobby Wygant and just talking about yeah, this whole thing being so new, so fresh, this this crazy Star Wars thing we're doing. Why should people go see this new Star Wars movie? Let's talk to Bobby about it. Yeah, you're going to hear we've got some of Bobby's interviews from yeah, 77 to 99 that we're going to be talking about. And everyone is solid gold. I think by the end, when we go through all of these, I think we can all learn how to be a little bit more Bobby in our daily lives. Yeah, maybe if we could all be a little more like Bobby, the world would be a a little bit less crazy. Or maybe it would be more crazy, but crazy in in fun ways. You don't do a job for 70 years unless you're having a good time. And in all of these interviews, you can tell to to her core that Bobby is having a blast. I think the world needs a little bit more Bobby Wygant right now. I think that's that's the recipe for <laughs> a little bit of good times. I'm 
Bobby Wygant, and happy to be with you for this occasion. We're going to have a lot of fun today. I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I have a broadcasting degree from Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. The film companies started sending out stars to promote movies because they found that TV was really effective in selling movies. So uh, that's how I, I started building up this backlog of interviewing stars. My favorite celebrity interview was Bob Hope, but then I interviewed Bob so many times. He used to say, Bobby, you have enough stuff on me to do a 52-week series. But it, it was wonderful. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, here we go. Let's get started. We're going to go one by one through the history of Bobby Wygant and Star Wars interviews. Where do you start? The only place you can start with the legend, the man himself, the Rickster, the Rick McCallum. He's got sunglasses around his neck on a strap because that's how he does it. And I love that this interview, too, with Rick starts out. And they haven't given like the the AOK that they're filming yet or something, and they're just like staring at each other. Yeah, Rick has that serious producer stare, and I'm sure she's just uh, staring back just as hard. Well, I love that Bobby just comes right out asking Rick the big questions. Right, right, right away. Who is the Phantom Menace? <laughs> Rick, good morning. Good morning. Rick McCallum, the producer. Of Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. 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 Let's get it right. I am the Phantom Menace. <laughs> I was going to ask you, who is the Phantom Menace? Now we know. <laughs> we all knew. I love his very, very coy explanation on if someone is watching the movie and is like, oh, who is the Phantom Menace? Well, you have to see the film many times to be able to try and understand that. But it, uh, it's a very important person who has a great deal of influence for all throughout all of the Star Wars films. But um, there's always somebody behind the scenes who are manipulating something, and uh, he is the Phantom Menace. <laughs> They'll never guess who it is. Then they get into like the the debate that was very hot. Like, oh, is it going to beat Titanic? Like, well, Phantom Menace is going to make more money than Titanic. Like, it was this crazy competition between Titanic and Episode One. So crazy. But I love when Bobby brings up Titanic, Rick's response. Do you think it'll be more than Titanic? What was Titanic? I think it's about 1.2 billion, 1.8 billion. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, it's hard for me to say that, seriously. I mean, I, I love the movie. I think there's a huge base of people that want to see it, and there will be a lot of people who actually um, see it over and over and over again. But it's too hard to get into that. I think it's one of the things that has damaged the film business personally, this uh, unbelievably competitive uh, nature that... Um, all the media and people have, you know, it's almost like if a film doesn't open well, people won't go see it. So it's something I don't really get into, but do I hope it personally does? Absolutely. Rick is talking about, too, the theater requirements to play Phantom Menace. You know, we spend millions and millions of dollars and spend years developing our soundtracks for our movie. And yet... There are 32,000 screens in the United States, and there's less than 1% that can accurately reproduce in terms of the image quality and sound quality 
of the film that we strive so hard and work so hard to make. And audiences need to be able to understand this because for the first time we're actually seeing young people who are willing to get in a car and drive an extra 30 miles to actually hear and see a movie properly. And exhibitors need to get their act together right away and make sure that they're developed, I mean, delivering the best possible presentation for people. Filmmakers spend too much effort and time, and nothing is more heartbreaking than having a movie go into a theater where half the surround speakers don't work, there's no subwoofer, there's nothing there that expresses the emotional content of the film. We use sound in a very uh, important way to tell our stories, and there's nothing more depressing for an audience to go into a theater after two or three days and see scratches all the way down their film. We don't want uh, one film to be shuttled all throughout a whole multiplex. We want that multiplex to have different prints in each theater so it's not damaged, so people aren't seeing films that way. So I'm surprised by their, um, and I'm actually shocked by it, and the other thing that's shocking about it is, is all we're asking is, is that there's only eight minutes of trailers. All the research that we've done and all the research that the theater owners have done has shown categorically that people don't want to sit for 24, 25 minutes watching trailers before a movie. Do you remember any of that going on? I do a little bit because I remember that was part of the Lucasfilm thing, always of trying to force the theaters to to upgrade. And it was kind of neat to hear him talk about this again because really all the stuff they were pushing for is kind of still relevant today and especially with the with the big push to oh you got to get back to the theaters and the theatrical experience and all that but the problems that they were kind of trying to address are still there where you might go to like a nice theater and the in you know there's the screen's dirty and the speakers don't work like that kind of still happens and the thing about trailers was insane like I wish there were only eight minutes of trailers <laughs> at the theater. They're, they're now like back to what he's saying, like they're 20, 30 minutes of trailer. So I don't know. It was interesting that they were pushing for stuff that really doesn't seem that unreasonable all these years later. I think I was just lucky that in Grand Rapids at the time we had a THX theater. And that was like the only place I ever saw the Phantom Menace. But I remember thinking, I was just like, I remember there being like a lot of trailers before Phantom Menace. Maybe the theater owners were just like, we've got THX, we can compromise on, <laughs> we, can, we can show all the trailers before this movie starts. Well, and I don't know if they ever got them to agree to the trailer thing. Yeah, maybe it was, maybe that was the compromise. They're like, all right, we'll upgrade our sound systems, but we're going to show as many trailers as we want. It's just, it's always good to see the amazing Mr. Rick McCallum. I know. Makes me a little tingly seeing him talking again. It's been too long. <laughs> I, I like to imagine that he's getting ready for bed somewhere and he still has the sunglasses around his neck. I hope he's watching Book of Boba Fett and like Boba comes out on the Rancor and he's just sitting on a couch somewhere. Yeah, with sunglasses around his neck and no shirt on. And he's like watching it. And he's like, that's f- awesome. <laughs> George Lucas was a filmmaker with a great big job to be done. A job that needed a producer, Rick McCollum was the one. Hey, Rick, Rick McCollum. Cinema's future, he did see, was digital technology. Hey, Rick, Rick McCollum. Okay, so let's 
go back in time. Let's go to June 4th, 1977, with Bobby's interview with a very young, handsome Harrison Ford. They really need to start interviewing people in front of nonsense computer terminals. They really need to bring that back. It's it's a sci-fi movie. There's just a bunch of, yeah, little blinking 1977 fake computers sitting behind Harrison Ford. And Harrison Ford has the most amazing wide collar on, too. He's Yeah, he's like disco Darth Vader. <laughs> the black jacket and white collar. Or maybe this is the secret inspiration to Luke's Return of the Jedi outfit. I was wondering, too, if he's riffing on just his Han Solo costume in general. The black vest, the white shirt. That's true. I love modern age grumpy Harrison Ford. But I also really love like young, dashing, handsome Harrison Ford. I just, at any age, it's like the intensity is always there. Because I love Bobby asking him, like, did you read like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon? And he's like, no. <laughs> well, George did. Have you always been a kind of Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, sci-fi fan? No, I never have. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever seen one of those, uh, one of those uh, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon series. Well, now we have something in common, Harrison, because you haven't either. No, I never read that stuff no, when I was a kid. Never, did never interested me, as a uh-uh. matter of fact. And I've never. Well, George been... did. George, <laughs> but this is George's movie, and George was able to write something which was accessible to, to my intelligence so that I could come up with something that I'd never seen before. That whole exchange is great because that you can see this is the beginning of Bobby Wynette, Star Wars freak, because she's kind of like, like, I didn't like any of that stuff either, but I love this movie. Like, you can tell that that's like, you know, that was the magic of that original movie is it was this totally out there sci-fi fantasy thing that, everybody could get sucked into. And here's this little old lady that interviews people about movies. And now she's like obsessed with this weird space fantasy. And that's just how it goes. And I love like her asking June 77, Harrison Ford, like, do you think star Wars is going to have a big effect on your career? Harrison Ford. Well, it's uh, everyone has respect for, for success. And this film is certainly a success. And uh, it, it is. It has produced the inevitable change for me. Yeah. In what way? Well, there are a lot more scripts for me to read, and a lot more people interested in uh, in using my services, mm-hmm. much to my delight. And then what he has this amazing story, where he sat next to two people during a screening of Star Wars, and he talked to them afterwards, and they had, for somehow they had no idea that he, Han Solo was sitting next to them. <laughs> Maybe they live in Handsome Town and everyone looks like Harrison Ford. You know, I saw the film with an audience for the first time about three days ago. Sat next to two people who had just were sitting through the film for the second time. And they engaged me in a conversation about the film, telling me how much they enjoyed it and what it was all about. And I asked them a few questions about specifics of why they enjoyed it so much. After the film was over, they, uh, they asked me why I had left during the middle of it if I didn't like the movie. And uh, they didn't recognize me at all. No. Really? I don't know. They, they might have been on a lot of drugs, Jason. <laughs> it, was, it was the 70s. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's stay in 1977 and let's move on 
to Weirdo Beardo Gary Kurtz. We're still June 4th, 77. Kurtz is in the 20th Century Fox Studios because at first I was like, where is he? Because there's like this Egyptian statue behind him. <laughs> I was like, are we in Brendan Fraser, the mummy? What's going on? Well, this is like if you watch it with no sound, it's like, oh, they're talking to some archaeologist. <laughs> I can't stop looking at Kurtz's beard, and I can't stop looking at his hair. Well, visually and just the audio comparing an interview with Gary Kurtz with an interview with Rick McCollum is like the as extreme opposites as you can get. It's really true. Like the producer of the first two Star Wars movies and the producer of the the middle three Star Wars movies, yeah, completely different characters. Kurtz, cool as a cucumber. It's like we were talking about in the beginning, too, of this episode, where they're talking to Gary Kurtz about the success of Star Wars. And it's this is so fascinating because it's like, how big is Star Wars going to be? Will it catch up to Jaws? Will there be a sequel? Gary, Star Wars is setting records all over the country. And I, I wonder, was this something that you anticipated? Of course you wanted to hit, and I'm sure you thought you had one, but this kind of success? No, we didn't anticipate this at all, especially the immediate response. We felt that it would take a few weeks for word of mouth from those who did like it to build up and to build an audience for uh-huh. it. really is amazing. How are these grosses comparing with other blockbuster films that we know about? Well, I guess they compare very favorably with the... the the other big hit, Jaws, it came out in the same type of picture that uh, that was an, more or less an instant hit. Although it is hard to tell because their releasing pattern was slightly different. But on a theater-by-theater basis, it's doing phenomenal business. I, I really find it difficult to believe yet. Because what is this, like a month after it came out, Not, if even? Two weeks? Like, two, yeah, just a couple weeks, maybe? And like he says, it's not even really playing everywhere in the United States by this point. Right, because he's talking about how, like, well, it's a regional hit in some in some markets. He says it's only playing in 44 theaters. It's just crazy to think about, like, this little snapshot in time when it was Star Wars mania in the summer of 1977. What are we talking about in terms of dollars? What kinds of first-week growth? Oh, I, I think that the total in the 44 theaters, we, we were about... Uh, uh, almost $3 million which for for the first week, which is not necessarily a record because we only had 44 theaters. A lot of other films have opened up in a lot more theaters. Uh, but the per theater amount is very, very high if you divide the total into the, into the amount. Do you foresee that it will catch up with Jaws? Well, that's something you can never tell. It would have to do very well for a long, long time to, to catch up with Jaws. And there's no way you can speculate on that for sure because it really depends on how many times people want to see the picture and how many, how many other people who don't normally go to the movies will come out and see it. So most assuredly now we will see Son of or <laughs> Part 2 or whatever well, of Star Wars. We're we? working on a, another story. I, I don't like to call it a sequel. I think another adventure with the same characters is probably a better term. Further adventures yes. of, yes. What Will it be called, will Star Wars be used in the title? or what? Uh, We're not sure yet. I don't think so. I think it will just be uh, another title completely because I don't like sequels per se. I, I think that if, if a second film using the same people can stand on its own as as a movie, fine. Uh, But I don't like to sort of trade on the popularity of the first one completely. I like they keep zooming in on his face, too. 
<laughs> if we zoom in close enough, maybe there'll be some expressions. <laughs> I wish I had a Gary Kurtz shirt for celebration. It just says Kurtz shirt on it. Maybe I'll get an Abraham Lincoln beard and cosplay as Kurtz. Kurtz play. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that today. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll shave off my mustache in May. Maybe I'll get arrested. So I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's probably safer not to. That's very true. They'll see you coming. They'll be like, that one's trouble. And they'll be like, no, it's my Kurtz play. No. <laughs> yeah. Off to jail with you, sir. They won't let you into Disneyland. That's for that's no. damn sure. <laughs> no, they probably have a poster behind the counter, and it's just all pictures of guys with no mustache and beards <laughs> let's jump over to 1999 and little jake lloyd star of jackass because he's talking about making stink bombs and <laughs> falling off a 10-story thing just he's just jake lloyd comes out and he's just talking about how he's just messing with everybody yeah little jake lloyd is just a little goofball and he is messing with bobby and the craziest thing to me right off the bat is him talking about how he got a chemistry set from his friend Brie Larson. Like that's, I didn't even think about that, that they were in the movie Madison together and they're exactly the same age. With my new chemistry set, thanks to Brie Larson, I do like to uh, make stink bombs. <laughs> oh, really? And then what do you do with them? Oh, well, like uh there's one Barbie that my sister has that her head comes off because she broke it. And so I'll pour it in the neck because there's that hole. And then next time it falls off. <sighs> <laughs> that somehow, I don't know how, but they get on the subject of Jake speaking Hatties. And I love that he just can just rattle it all off. Like, Chesco Soboba, Mitis Radical Panda Pichapachawa was more like Chesco Soboba Mitisa Oh Chipok no no wait it's how I said it was Chesco Soboba Chiporka Utman Gisa Mitisa Radakopana Pichapachawa. It was actually Chipork Chiporka Utman Gisa and not Utman. It was like all kinds of different stuff, so I kinda changed it to make it flow more. Good for him. Like he was in to being Anakin, and I'm glad that he was. Oh, and this also, aside after Rick, this is our second mention of Bobby saying she is a Star Wars freak. I enjoyed this movie very, very much. Yeah. I'm a big Star Wars freak, and I really like this one a lot, and I like your performance. Thanks. It, it, it kind of broke my heart a little bit, too, when she asked Jake if he's in the next one. And uh, will you be in the next one or not? No. Too Aww. old. Aw. Yeah. Well, you'll be doing other films. They'd have to wait eight years. Eight years. The other thing, too, is like he's he's talking about deleted scenes in here with R2 with the rockets and stuff. Um, there was a scene in the film where R2 fell off the ledge and then brought himself back up with uh, rockets. But when I fell off, it was for it was where the R2 fell when R, where R2 fell off. Right when he's at the ledge in the film, he gets somehow he gets up on there, and then he um, he's like walking around. Oh no no, he runs into it on accident, and falls over. Like I'm glad I didn't see this in '99 because I would have been losing my mind. Oh my god, R2 is gonna fly on rockets. Little Jake Lloyd told me. Yeah. But then also you could be like, well, he's a trickster. 
pulling pranks, making stink bombs, filling his sister's doll with stink. Let's jump to Mark Hamill and David Prowse in 1980 promoting the Empire Strikes Back. They're, I think, on the Fox lot. I think they say it is a huge backdrop with the ion cannon behind them. Bobby coming right out and asking David Prowse, did they change the Darth Vader mask? David, I have to ask you straight away. Have they changed Darth Vader's mask? Uh, yes, they have, very slightly, yes. They're, well, they made all sorts of improvements to it, because if first and foremost, you see, I, uh, on, on the previous one, they decided that they could see through into the eyepieces, and so they put darker lenses in. Then they've, uh, they, they've also made the mask, um, I think they made the mask a, a different colour, in fact, out of a different fibreglass, a, a greyish colour. If you didn't believe her that she's really into this stuff... She's really into this stuff because she, yeah, she's asking the real questions. Bobby was sitting in the, she's a Star Wars freak and she was sitting in the theater for the Empire Strikes Back and she's like, wait a minute. That's a different Vader mask. So, so good. I didn't even think about like the different Vader masks. I th- swear, like the late 90s where someone's like, you know, Vader mask is different in A New Hope, Empire, and Jedi. And I was like, wait, no, it is. Oh my God, you know? Well, you think back to when you, if you were watching the VHS versions, they all looked the same. I mean, like <laughs> you really couldn't tell that much of a difference. Cause I still remember like when we first started seeing new hope, the like HD versions, you know, even like Blu-ray where it was like, Oh my God, you can tell it's like carved out of wood. Like I didn't remember that from being a kid and you couldn't really tell that on the VHS. So, but yeah, she's sitting in the theater taking notes She's like, I know I'm going to talk to that guy one of these days, and I'm going to ask him about the suit. I want to know. Bobby's going to be at home watching Obi-Wan Kenobi. She's going to be like, now, is it going to be the Rogue One Vader? Is it going to be the new Hope Vader? What Vader are we talking about here with the yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi Vader? Yeah, Is Ewan going to have the real beard or the glued-on beard? And I love Prowse talking about how he got the direction from Kirsch, Erwin Kirshner, to have Vader move a little bit slower in The Empire Strikes Back, that it's a more subdued Vader, I think he says. It was a very subdued, I thought, Darth Vader. Kirsch Kirsch decided he didn't want me to play it um, at the speed at which I played the previous one, because on the the first one I tried to establish Darth Vader's authority, primarily by, well, obviously by physical presence, but by his walk through the picture. And I was trying to make everybody subservient to me by, by them all having to run to keep up with me. And Kirsch said, no, slow up. So that, he said, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a much more subtle type of authority. I love all of that. Just calling attention to the fact that Vader in Empire, is a, he's not moving around quite as fast as he is in Star Wars. Because it's, you know, it's Vader's thinking about Luke and his son. And I was just like, oh, yes. Yeah, no, that I had never really thought about that until watching this interview of just how much... Yeah, New Hope Vader is like always in a hurry to get somewhere and that this, you think about Empire and he's just, he's strolling or just standing and thinking more. And no one is allowed to tell David Prowse anything. Like they talk about the ending and Prowse had absolutely no idea because Prowse notoriously was leaking secrets all the time, was at some convention in 1983 and told the whole crowd about Ewoks and the Lucasfilm people at this convention lost their minds because Ewoks were supposed to be a huge secret. 
Prowse, the 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 original spoiler master, David Prowse. Now I don't want to give it away, but I just want to say that in this story there is a connection between you and Darth Vader. It's, yes. Was it as much a surprise to you the first time you became aware of it? Well, it was very tricky because of the um, the, the problem with security and, and the fact that people like to leak out these um, Stop looking at me. secrets. Stop looking at me. <laughs> God bless David. He, he has this wonderful quality. He tells everybody everything. Well, and Mark Hamill, for being uh, not Mr. Spoiler... Given up the original line is pretty wild for a, a TV interview in 1980. Right. I think the, the line that he twist. was saying was that you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. Yeah. And that's when I reacted, no, no. And he said, search your feelings, you know it to be true. And that, of course, has been changed for, yeah. for what it is now. Yeah. <laughs> you had a bogus script. Yeah. Well, in that final scene where the re- revelations occur, uh, he... he uh, I memorized not only what David was saying, but what would later be put in. Because, um, and it was terrible. It was like knowing the secret, and I was bursting to tell people. But I think it's nice in the sense that they're taking advantage of the fact that many people really feel they know the characters well enough. Uh, For instance, the Obi-Wan character is such a symbol of purity, and then to discover that he has not been completely honest with me. And for whatever reason, we don't know, whether it's for his own gain or for the ends justify the means, we don't know. But now, uh, even Darth Vader has is become a, a various shade of gray. It's not just clear cut. And I think it's a real gamble. And I think that we can be proud of the fact that we didn't deliver the same experience that Star Wars delivered. I think that brings us right to our next one. Bobby's review of The Empire Strikes Back. This review is an absolute work of art from start to finish. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. Bobby, the Star Wars freak, comes out and she's talking about how this is part of the nine Star Wars picture saga. Yes, the Force is with us again. This is the second of what could be a nine picture series. At the rate George Lucas is going, Star Wars may reach 2001. Wouldn't that be crazy? <laughs> we'll be so old by that point. What will be going on? <laughs> I love her description of Luke in The Empire Strikes Back. Mark Hamill is yeah. back as Luke Skywalker, the wide-eyed space kid. But he's not so jolly G this time. And he has some new foes like these walking tanks. Are, are any of us as golly G as we used to be, though? Really? <laughs> What what level of golly gee Luke are we talking about? Anytime anyone ever talks about Luke ever, I'm going to be like, you know, he's not as golly gee as he used to be. <laughs> Princess Leia has a new hairdresser. I bet Carrie Fisher is glad to get rid of those hairy earmuffs. And surely she's glad to have a romance with Han Solo, played again by Harrison Ford. The Empire Strikes Back doesn't boggle our minds with special effects like Star Wars. It was all so new then, but with the advancements in computer filmmaking, Empire has plenty of visual wonderment. And while not as humorous as the first movie, it's still fun. I love Bobby talking about, too, how this one's not as humorous, because like we were talking about, like we don't really think of that with The Empire Strikes Back now, where it's like still in that world where there was only Star Wars. 
and yeah, somebody'd be like, if somebody went to go see the Empire Strikes Back, thinking this is just going to be Star Wars again, and Empire is a little bit more serious, and be like, oh, this is different. But now Empire is like Empire. Yeah. Well, and for a lot of people, Empire's Empire, and Star Wars is the different one. Like, ah, oh, that one's that one's kind of goofy. I like the real one, Empire. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and in like a lot of people, and too, she she brings up the ending where it's like. People weren't ready for the ending to not be the ending. The Empire Strikes Back is as entertaining for all ages as Star Wars. It may be even better in some ways, except for the ending. It's as if they stopped for a commercial and forgot to come back. She's talking about the the Muppet character, Yoda. The most fun is the new Muppet character, Yoda. He looks like a long-in-the-tooth troll, but I guarantee every kid will want one. But, you know, just when you think maybe, well, did Bobby like Empire or not like Empire? She wraps it all up beautifully at the ending. Even so, I'm convinced the Star Wars stories are still the Rolls Royces of space adventures. Bobby Wygant, Channel 5 Action News. I think she was onto something because they still are. Have truer words ever been spoken? Somebody said, what's, what's Blast Points about? We talk about the Rolls Royce of space adventures, Star Wars. Have you heard of it? We got to move on. We got to move on. We got 49 more of these to talk about. (laughs) Let's jump to 1999. Natalie Portman. She's 17 years old. This one is just amazing because it is just this little spotlight to 17-year-old Natalie Portman. And especially since Natalie Portman is still a big star all these years later. And with the little extra before the interview starts of them doing her hair and her just being tired from doing all these and like, just mess it up a little bit. Come on, mess up my hair a little bit. Come on. <laughs> like, yeah. Mess it up a little. Thanks. To reflect my personality at this point, I'm all frazzled. <laughs> I love though, Bobby just coming right out with the hard hitting questions. What kind of construction was that dress? Now, the, I, to me, the most uh, amazing one is the throne room gown with the lights around. Oh, that was really... Yes. Really... Uh, what, uh, what kind of a construction job was that, and how did they get you in and out of it? Well, it was actually pretty easy to put on. There was kind of a slip underneath, and then the top part, which had these big light bulbs on, and they kept it off you know, while I had it on. And then right before we'd start filming, they'd turn on the lights and it would go on. But we couldn't leave it on for too long or else it would overheat and there's danger that it would catch on fire. So it was, it was, it was tricky, but, but it was so beautiful. And uh, there's this one shot that's really far away and it just, the gown looks so beautiful. The shape of it is, is, am- uh, is just amazing. The, the costume designers in this film did an, outra- an outrageous job. People can laugh about that, but when we went to the costume exhibit in Detroit, what was the first thing we did with the gown dress that Bobby is talking about? We were down on our knees looking at the bottom of it to see how the lights worked. That's what people want to know. You know, like like with the Vader thing, Bobby was sitting in the theater and she's like, I need to know how they made that dress. People laugh. Ha ha, Bobby. No, it's true. We all wonder that. We're all kind of Bobby deep inside. We be more Bobby. And we heard the story that Natalie Portman tells here about how they had to turn the lights on and then immediately turn them off or they would overheat and they didn't want the dress to catch on fire. I do love, too, that that Natalie praises the costume people and says they did an outrageous job, which is the perfect description of the costumes in a Phantom Menace. 
just across the board, everything in the Phantom Menace, everything in the Star Wars prequels, they did an outrageous job. Yeah. Let's jump to Samuel Jackson, Mace Windu, 1999. Bobby's trying to figure out what his role in the movie is. Is he the administrative assistant? But he's on the Jedi Council. He's pretty much the head of the Jedi Council next to Yoda. Yoda's right-hand man. Yeah, I'd like to think that. Yeah. Yoda's administrative assistant. Yes. <laughs> yes, the man who has uh, Yoda's ear. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's a lot of ear to and have. That's a lot of ear to have. Yes, you're right. I, I just love this, too, because you can tell she interviews everyone when movies come out. And Samuel Jackson is in every movie that comes out. So just the fact that you can kind of see that they kind of have a somewhat of a relationship at this point because they're running into each other for, in these uh, press things so many times. And he's got so many movies coming out, too, where at the end he's just rattling stuff off and he gives a tease to coming soon is Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> it's like, wow, we were in a pre-Deep Blue Sea world back then. How did we? How did we ever survive? Well, and I think the most fascinating thing to me is that Samuel Jackson has his own hats made when he's in a movie so he can wear them and give them to his friends. But he's hoping Lucas doesn't go after him. <laughs> I see you've got, did they make that especially for you? Um, you know, I, I always have these made for films generally and I pass them out to the cast and crew members, but I wasn't on this film long enough to do that. So I only had a specific, maybe a few of these made just so I could wear them when I got to this and, Probably throw some to my friends because it's not licensed merchandise. Oh, I see. Exactly. George Lucas will come swooping down on you. Possibly, yes, <laughs> and it might endanger my chances of being in the next two films. Yes. <laughs> when did he give George Lucas one of those hats? I I hope so. I hope so. Let's move on to more Phantom Menace love. Liam Neeson. Right away, how do you pronounce his name in the movie? Tell me how to pronounce your character's name. Kwai Gon Jin. Kwai Gon Jin. Yeah. Okay. Because mostly. There's a bit of a mouthful, I guess, isn't it? Well, that, I guess that's why in the film they call you just Master. Caesar, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or hey, you. Again, asking the questions we're all thinking at home. If only I could speak to Liam Neeson and ask him how to pronounce Kwai Gon Jin. Bobby's a Star Wars freak. She knows. Even if you think you know a Star Wars character's name, you probably are not saying it right. 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 What do, you know, in fairness, though, I remember before the movie came out and seeing the name Qui-Gon Jinn in print and being like, oh, no. Remember that, that I bought? That was the first toy I bought at the, like, toy show. And they had Phantom Menace figures. And I bought the cool new Jedi. And I could not tell you what his name was, even though it was written down. Where people say it's Keegan Jin. I remember someone telling me that to my face. No, it's Keegan. And I was like, I don't know. Though seeing Liam Neeson in this interview, though, and hearing him talk about Qui-Gon just, just whetted my whistle for the possibility of him showing up in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, and I love that he's like, well, there is a lot of madness in this film. <laughs> I really loved your performance because to me, Liam, you are the anchor of the entire film. That's well, the way you. I see it. Thank you. Yeah, well, I have to, um, you know, there's a lot of madness in the film, so I have to be a kind of a straight guy to, to uh, all, this, all these hijinks going about, you know. Truer words have never been spoken. 
he was there. He knows. He's speaking the truth. Speaking of madness, let's jump to 1980 with the comedy tag team of the century, Harrison Ford and Anthony Daniels. Man, in a in a chest full of solid gold bricks, this might be the the most solid and goldest bricks. I wish these two were always paired up for interviews. Even even like when Harrison Ford's talking about other movies he's in, they should just make Tony Daniels go with him. Do they like each other? Do they not like each other? What's going on? Tony Daniels starts talking about some story where Harrison Ford wanted to leave the set of The Empire Strikes Back, and Harrison Ford is just like... Did you have as many technical breakdowns this time? No. I know in the first one, R2-D2 was always breaking down. He started sewing the set set in half at one point. He started what? (laughs) That's an entirely different story. I didn't hear what you said. Entirely different story, and I'm not very proud of that moment. (laughs) Well, I liked it. I got very anxious to go home. and uh, It was very near the end of the film. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm so embarrassed by it. I, I really oh. must forgive me if I don't, if I don't want to tell it. Then, you tell it. No, then, then I won't embarrass Best you. Best forgotten. But write in and we'll we, I'll send you a copy uh, of it. Suffice it to say <laughs> that I, was, I, was, uh, I thought I was going to be required for 10 weeks, and it took 20 weeks to make it. And I was very tired from the film I'd done before and anxious to go home. Uh, not at all uh, unenthusiastic about the project. It's just a limit to sure. anybody's endurance. There's a story where Tony Daniels would get so frustrated being C-3PO that he would just go out back and smash stuff. But there have to be ways of letting you frustrated. I used to go and find, I mean, timid little 3PO. Once I'm out of the costume, I'd go back at the set and find a big piece of timber and go and smash it on a rock until it was too small. Did you know that? No. <laughs> I, I couldn't break it anymore. And then I'd go, but I'd be better after that. <laughs> I mean, we all have to find ways of letting it out, you know. And you long to scream in the middle of it and say, ah. There's so much in this interview. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's Harrison Ford kind of, it's like part two to that 77 interview where now he's made all these movies in between and he's just trying to do everything he can to kind of, show his range as an actor. And then he kind of gets to the point where he's like, well, this isn't all about me. And then they start talking about C-3PO, but then Anthony Daniels is just goofing around. And yeah, it's, I don't, I love it. But you know, Harrison Ford is genuinely being nice, like letting them know, you know, you have no idea what Tony went through filming these movies. Like he understands. Even Harrison will spend the whole day in a scene looking at my left ear because he can't see my eyes and he thinks they're here somewhere and all that kind of <laughs> But I'm pretty tough to act with. I mean, I wouldn't say so at all. I think. <laughs> but it's not easy acting with a, a faceless thing. No, no, but with a, what characterization you've given it is entirely your own and that's. Uh, it's remarkable. But to how see. does it feel, kind of being faced with a, a metal plate? Wait a second. This is not my interview. <laughs> and I love. Does he think he'd be able to play three PO at the age of sixty? Are you planning to stay for all nine films, assuming they do nine films? Oh, I don't think it's up to me. Well, there are vague thoughts that the, the two robots go on through the through the whole thing, um, which I don't know whether they do or not. Whether I could play three PO at the age of sixty. I mean, when I was sixty. Is, is a question housewives all over America are asking about. <laughs> but it is like the suit gets bigger every time because he's like, I'm not coming back unless they make the suit bigger. And I think that's happened for every movie. 
Well, let's jump to 1994. The one and only George Lucas. He's talking about Radioland murders. Have you been able to figure out what's on his tie? I try not to look too long at it because I, I'm going to get sucked into just staring at it. And then I'm going to start looking at his hair. And we spent way too long talking about that a couple of weeks ago. And I, just, I can't go back to this. This is like a kind of a special look. This is like he's got like black leather boots on, jeans, a black button-up shirt, and some crazy tie. Like this is not the normal uh, Lucas look. Well, it's like we talked about in episode 300. This is mid-90s Lucas. This is all business Lucas. We're, you know, we've come out of the the Star Tours era and he's, he's getting his groove going. He's about ready to get back in the director's chair. We're not in the full flannel shirt and shorts and Nike Monarchs yet. It's wonderful to have this chance to talk with you here in Pasadena about Radioland murders. I enjoyed it. It's fun. It's fun. And got a lot of uh, different things going for it. Uh, you know, are the kids going to like Radioland murders? Well, it's kind of like MTV. Do you think young people who did not grow up with this kind of radio will be able to relate to it and enjoy it on all its levels? Uh, well, so far, a lot of the young people have seen it have really liked it because it's, stylistically, it's very much like MTV. It's very fast-paced and it's very funny. So, um, hopefully, they will get beyond the fact that it's about uh, a historic event in their lives. <laughs> the kids didn't like Radioland Murders. <laughs> Fascinating. Like the she's talking to Lucas about how secretly groundbreaking Radioland Murders was with taking some of the technology from Young Indy and putting it on film as a test run for the Star Wars prequels. But the interview really takes off when she asks Lucas the most important question anyone has ever asked George Lucas. Is it your company that's trying to work on uh, making lava look like lava in a digitalized way? Um, I'm not sure. Lava. Lava. We're, There's doing, some we're film. doing about four or five films right now, but uh, uh, we've done some lava. My company's done lava before, but um, uh, I'm not sure whether we've done it digitally or not. Oh, well, uh, some company, and I've been trying to track it down, is trying to work on lava flow, and they're uh-huh. having, and it's uh, it, it's proving to be quite a daunting thing for them. Is Bobby's incredibly important question about lava? Did that inspire? him to go all out with Revenge of the Sith. Because we always knew, you know, that for years, for decades, it was, you know, Anakin fell into a pit of lava. I think it was in the Alan Dean Foster novelization of Star Wars, right? I think that's when we talked about that. That's where that came from or something. I don't know. Lucas said it in interviews. But did he go away from this being like, episode three, we got to really get that, got to get that lava going. We got to do the best lava we can. Bobby's going to be, call me out if the lava's no good. (laughs) Bobby just wanted some digital lava so bad. But this is like the perfect example of why Bobby Wygant is so amazing. Because here she is. It's not like she hadn't already been doing this for almost 50 years, 40 years at this point. Like, she's an old pro. And she's talking to George Lucas in 1994, who is kind of a big deal in 1994. It's not like George Lucas is this new, hot young filmmaker, and she has a few minutes of his time, and she's going to ask him about digital lava, (laughs) because that's what popped into her head. She's really curious. She wanted to know about the lava. 
If I sat down with George Lucas tomorrow, I would not have the courage to ask him about digital lava, even though I might be thinking about it. I'd be terrified. I would barely be able to make a single word come out of my mouth. (laughs) I'd have like a little note card in front of me with digital lava written on it, and I would just awkwardly put it back in my pocket. (laughs) Just show it to him and then drop it and run away. (laughs) Bobby... That's why, that's why Bob, that's why we need Bobby. Well, and that's why we're saying we all need to be more like Bobby. So when you're face to face with George Lucas, you don't hesitate to ask him about lava. If that's what you want to ask George Lucas, walk right up to him. George, are you working on lava? I need to know. That's why we need to be more Bobby because Bobby has no fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Fear leads to the dark side. Bobby is a Star Wars freak and she is on the light side. She has no fear. We need to go into our days with less fear, less trepidation. Make the best out of every day. That's what Bobby was doing. That's why she's a Star Wars freak. She was picking up on that in the movies. Digital Lava. Let's jump over to 1980. Carrie Fisher and Billy D. Williams, the coolest kids in the classroom. Another one. It's good stuff. I love that they're in front of these paintings of Empire Strikes Back stuff. I love Bobby talking to Carrie about she gets a little bit more love with Harrison Ford, with Han Solo in this one. And Carrie saying that necking in space is fine. Were you pleased about the romantic involvement with Han? Sure, I I think, you know, necking in space is fine. (laughs) Would you have changed anything about it if you'd been directing it? Maybe more kissing. Billy D, the old smoothie. Just right, just right away complimenting Bobby Wygant on her teeth. <laughs> yeah. You have pretty teeth. Pretty <laughs> <smart>. <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> I don't know what that He's has to do with our but... Well, and Billy D too. Gabe, what did you think about when they start talking about Billy D and his painting and his art he's doing? He's talking about how he was doing sketches on the set of Empire of a self-portrait of himself as Lando. Did Star Wars, or did working in The Empire Strikes Back, did that uh, inspire you to want to do anything of that nature? Well, I always carry my little pad with me and my color pencils, you know, and I, I started doing uh, some self-portraits, which I always find difficult to do, but I tried to do one uh, as, as the character of Lando Calrissian, you know. And I think I, I think I got one in there. I did about three of them. I think I got one in there that, that kind of captures something about the character. But it's interesting when you start doing things like that, really. Yeah, that's crazy stuff that he's got. Uh, he probably still has those. I looked it up. Like, I think he's actually done a couple Star Wars paintings of his paintings. Because I saw a gallery had one. It was like, it was the most expensive painting. Because I'm sure he's like, somebody Star Wars crazy is going to pay a ridiculous amount for this painting. But there is like a Billy D. Lando Empire Strikes Back painting. But yeah, just the idea of him on set, just like sketching Lando Self-portraits is kind of incredible. Okay, so now here we go. We're sticking in 1980. We're talking about Gary Kurtz and Irvin Kirshner. As much solid gold as Harrison Ford and Anthony Daniels is, this is like a chest made of solid gold holding all the other solid gold. (laughs) 
I watched this for the first time just this week, getting ready for this episode. And when I watched this, I literally almost died. And we'll, let's just play the clip because Bobby, she's talking to the director and the producer of The Empire Strikes Back. And there's a little something that Bobby was fascinated by. She's got to talk to the people in charge about what the heck this was. You have many more and, and a number of new effects and special things in this one. I was totally fascinated by Tauntaun. How does that work? <laughs> Gabe, how does Tauntaun work? <laughs> I was not prepared for Tauntaun. I'm still not prepared for Tauntaun. It's, it's the way she says it. Tauntaun. Tauntaun. How does that work? Guys, <laughs> I can't get enough. I cannot. I can't. I've watched this like 10 times. I can't get enough of Bobby saying Tauntaun. Was there a body inside Tauntaun? No. No. no it's all mechanical. All mechanical. And was it difficult for Mark Hamill to ride Tauntaun? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I'm never going to be able to say a Tauntaun, the Tauntaun. Again, I, for the rest of my life, I just want to call it. I love the beginning of Empire on Hoth with Luke on Tauntaun. And the, it's so incredible because the reaction we're having is the reaction that Irving Kirshner, director of Empire Strikes Back, is having in the moment. He can't believe this little lady is just asking all these insane questions about Tauntaun, and he just loves it. He just loves every minute of it. And what's great, yeah, is that Kirsch is busting up laughing. And Kurtz, who just earlier when we were talking about Gary Kurtz in 1977, no emotion whatsoever. Kurtz, if you watch this interview, so by, yeah, by the way, you've made it almost to the end of the episode. But we're going to have like links to all these on BlastPointsPodcast.com. If you head over there after the show is done, we'll have a full list of all the links where you can watch these on YouTube. Kurtz is like on Saturday Night Live when someone's trying so hard not to laugh. Kurtz is just keeping it in. And eventually Bobby's just like, okay, you're laughing. What's up? And I love that Irwin Kirshner, total pro, turns it around and makes the whole thing just this eloquent, deep thing on how the suspension of disbelief and if you don't know how Tauntaun worked and you have questions about Tauntaun, then they did their job right. You're, you're laughing, Kirsch. Mm -hmm. Why are you laughing? I was laughing because I was pleased with your question. <laughs> <laughs> the best special effects are those that you don't notice, that, that just work for and you. And most of the, many of the special effects, I'd say over half the special effects in this picture, people are not even aware of as being special effects. There's so much going on that you just accept. That's all special effects. And it's this integration of special effects and the characters, uh, which is part of telling the story, that really makes the whole thing work and makes it look effortless. If you were aware of the special effects, it wouldn't be effortless. It would be mechanical. And to make it mechanical is very easy. To make it smooth and effortless is very difficult. And uh, we achieved somewhat uh, pretty good results uh, if you can ask these questions this whole the whole back half of this interview with Kirshner just getting into the deep stuff is so good 
building off of the Tauntaun stuff into just how Star Wars is successful internationally because it builds off of a common dream and people's dreams, dream lives and dream states and how these movies aren't logical. They're extra logical. You said something that there was no logical way to explain the success of Star Wars. And I'd like to ask you what you mean about no logical way to explain it. Well, Gary started to say that. He says there are so many variables that determine the mood or needs or desires of an audience. The thing that I love about this picture is the fact that it is not logical. And that's why I think people in many countries can experience it because um, they're experiencing something that, that is cross-cultural. Uh, it's, the, it's the common dream that they're experiencing. If you come from a highly technological society, or if you come from a very primitive society, the thing that you have in common is that you all dream uh, from childhood on, and those dreams carry over into your everyday life. And a really exciting story often has dreamlike qualities where taboos are considered okay to experience, where, uh, you can, where you can go places where in your real life you would never go, where you can feel things that in your real life you have no chance to, to feel or experience. And this is extra logical. This is not thinking things through and saying, well, this means so-and-so, and this is why this happens. It goes beyond that. It goes really into the realm of the unconscious. It goes into the fairy tale, into the story. Uh, and it goes back into prehistory, the elements that you try for in a good story. So good. Just Kirsch is just the absolute best. And that's back way back when we did our Irvin Kirshner tribute episode. I'm like, we, we, we talked about that, of how much of the deep stuff of Empire, like the middle part of Empire with Yoda, how much is that? That is just total Kirsch, too. But I love Bobby, too, talking about the, the she's really hung up on the ending of The Empire Strikes Back. People are talking about the ending. Some people say that, uh, you know, it, it, it just jarred them a little bit or it didn't seem quite right to them. Let me ask you, did you shoot more than one ending? No. This was the ending. The ending uh, may jar them only because they saw Star Wars 1 and there was a triumphant ending where everyone was successful and were, were patting each other on the back and were handing medals out and giving gold to each other. I mean, they were, and people were lined up paying homage to them because they were heroic figures. Well, the heroic figures for the first one don't exist in this one because in this one, they're lucky to have survived this dastardly creature called Lord Darth Vader. And to just have survived is, uh, is to get pretty far in this life sometime. <laughs> and that's why I feel uh, they probably say uh, they're not as satisfied. Well, if you don't expect the triumphant ending, then you're perfectly well satisfied. If you expect it, then you're not. And it's the same as in life. If you expect certain things to happen, they never will happen the way you expect them, you know. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, she probably had just seen the movie recently, and she was, like Kirshner goes into, she was expecting Star Wars 2 and ex expecting the outrageously positive ending where even 
you know, Kirschner's talking about people handing out medals and, and shaking hands and hugging each other. Like this is a different movie and it has a different kind of ending. And that just the idea that them surviving is their reward for Empire Strikes Back. Watching this and hearing Kirshner talk is just like, oh, love you, Kirshner. Well, this interview is like the most Star Wars of a Star Wars interview because it goes from super Kirshner deep thoughts to Tauntaun. Tauntaun. <laughs> How does that work? Okay. Our final Bobby Wygant moment of absolute joy that we're talking about in this episode. Her review of The Phantom Menace. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace takes place before the three Star Wars movies we've already seen. So we have a number of new characters, including Darth Maul. Oh, she knows the good stuff when she sees it. She's <laughs> like, I watch a lot of movies, and none of those other movies have Darth Maul in them. You know, and I love that we're decades after The Empire Strikes Back, but if you take her review of Empire and her review of Phantom Menace, they're pretty similar, and she's just totally spot on. I mean, she misses Chewbacca. Yeah, as we all do. I miss Chewbacca. Chewie will always be one of my favorites. She's a fan of Jar Jar. Probably the most fun of the new characters is Jar Jar Binks, played by Ahmed Best. Some moviegoers are having trouble understanding him, but Jar Jar is supposed to say words differently with an island dialect. Ah. Your support is well seen. This way. Hurry! But it really shines at the end, where she kind of sums up everything Star Wars with her final assessment of The Phantom Menace. It's not going to be the second coming of whatever was your first experience with Star Wars. Keep your expectations in check and you'll have a good time because, like she said, this is still the Rolls-Royce of space adventure. She doesn't say that, but that's what she's saying. But it's like it's like last week when we were talking about our Book of Boba recap. You just got the expectation versus what's really happening. And keep that all in check, and you'll enjoy the Rolls-Royce of space adventure. Telling it like it is. This movie's four stars. It's a shame there's not more Bobby. It's a shame there's not Bobby's review of The Force Awakens. That would have been amazing. Last Jedi, everything. But who knows? Maybe there is. Like we said, the Bobby Wygant archive is still being updated. Perhaps in the future there could be a Bobby Wygant Volume 2 episode. I hope so. I'd love to see her talking to Hayden Christensen. Yes. Or anything for Jedi. You know she's got to have some Return of the Jedi ones in there somewhere. I want to hear her review of Return of the Jedi. She thought Jabba was gross. I want to hear her initial <laughs> thought of Jabba being gross. What did she think of the end of Return of the Jedi? Did she do the special editions? Oh. Was Jabba less gross or more gross than those? Listen, this is what we need to know. Call her up. Tell us about the twins. What do you think? Gross, not gross. So we just talked about all this Bobby Wygant beautifulness. Gabe, what are you taking away? How can you be more Bobby Wygant here in March 2022? Be sincere. Be honest. Ask the questions that are in your heart. Have no fear. And have fun. And do what you love. So you can do it for 70 years. I'm doubling up with every single word you said. And I'm just going to add to 
take some of that joy you have in your day and spread it out to others because that's the thing you you get the sense with some of the Bobby interviews where people sit down and they're like okay another press interview they have these poor actors they have to do this all day and probably ask some of the most ridiculous questions and they sit down with Bobby and she is just radiating joy and positivity and how many of these Star Wars actors do you see suddenly smile when they see Bobby it doesn't matter if it's 1977, 1980, or 1999. And that's what I'm taking out from being more Bobby. Just spread the love. And I'm sure no one else ever asked George Lucas in the 90s if his company was working on lava. Not until 2003, maybe people started asking about lava. Maybe. Maybe 2004. If we run into John Knoll in the hallway at Celebration Anaheim, which we always do, <laughs> and he very nervously gives us a side eye, as John Knoll, is your company working on lava right now? <laughs> oh, I thought it was you guys. Restraining order, and the cops will take us away. Which maybe they'll take me away because you'll already be in jail because of your Gary Kurtz beard trying to get into Disneyland. So that's how you can get to jail and, and we'll hang out. For the second half of celebration in jail. <laughs> Come hang out with Blast Points in the Anaheim jail. Breaking our restraining order with John Knoll and a Gary, creepy Gary Kurtz beard. They might have a really nice jail there because it's like Disney jail. Maybe Goofy's the guard. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably like a wood fire pizza truck in the jail or something. You know? Palm trees and sunshine. When you come in, try to grab the big key off of Goofy's belt so we can escape. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Continues the excitement. Tauntaun Hoth Wampa and action figures each sold separately. Han Solo! Help! It's got Luke! Rampa! Watch it, Tauntaun! Gotcha! Tauntaun comes with an open belly rescue feature. You'll be okay, Luke, as soon as I chase away that thing! Rampa! Tauntaun Hoth Wampa and other action figures each sold separately from Kenner's Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back Collection. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Apple podcast reviews when you get done listening to this 
be like Bobby Wygant and leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Say something nice. It helps the show move up those bizarre Apple Podcast charts. And most important, we really love reading your reviews. And after that, make sure you check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com, where we will post all the links to the videos from this week's episode. And after that, make sure you are following us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you are in our super chill group. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where we got all of our in-depth Book of Boba Fett reviews and Clone Wars and Mandalorian reviews and commentaries and so much more. And very soon we're going to have a super fun listener Q&A episode, which we've already got a bunch of questions in, and it's going to be super fascinating, super fun. But that's all going on on the Blast Points Army, and a huge thank you to all the people over there. But yeah, that wraps up number 302, Bobby Wygant. My soul already feels better for after talking about Bobby for an hour. Yeah, it's like I got to put some time in my schedule every week to just watch some Bobby interviews. And I probably can do that for the rest of my life and not get through all of them. <laughs> There's so many. If the news of the world is bringing you down, just just take a break and watch some Bobby. Just smile for about 11 minutes. Yeah. Everything's better with Bobby. So, all right, folks. We will be back next week with more Star Wars Madness. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. probably used up more than our allotted time, but uh, this has been fun for me. I hope it has been for you, uh, you know, uh, uh, laughing at some of these uh, remembrances and being sad at some of the other things that uh, come into a reporter's life, but uh, I've loved being with you, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. May the force be with all of